The trains don't stop here. By M. R. Cosby. I'm on a train, travelling south on the coastal line, just out of Central Station. It's a hot day, but the air conditioning in this carriage is making my skin prickle with the chill. I've only been in Australia for a few weeks, so I haven't got used to it yet. There's a big difference in the weather between London and Sydney, especially in February. I'm travelling with a friend of mine by the name of Ben Stoker. You know what they say, if you want to fall out with someone, go on holiday together. Well, that's certainly the case for us. Despite having been so close for the whole of our lives, in no time we're barely on speaking terms. When you live out of each other's pockets, even the smallest things get on your nerves. The problem is that Ben and I have different ideas about the trip. For me, it's meant to be the holiday of my life. Sydney Opera House, Bondi Beach, girls with suntans, that kind of thing. Ben, however, is more adventurous. He wants to get away from the crowds, see the outback, camp in remote places. He's much more of the outdoors type than I'd realised before we embarked on this trip. Australia is perfect for all that stuff. But it seems too much like hard work to me. For the first couple of weeks, I somehow managed to get my own way. We stayed in comfortable hotels, relaxed on golden beaches and soaked up the sun. I even struck up a romantic friendship with a girl named Kyla. I met her on the steps of Sydney Opera House, while we watched the New Year's Eve fireworks. So the very last thing I want to do is go on this camping trip to the middle of nowhere. When we boarded at Central, the train had been packed. So we were crammed together, standing room only. Once out of the city, the train emptied out, so as soon as we could, we made our way to opposite ends of the carriage. Now I sit alone, staring through the grimy train window as we creep past monotonous scenery. Although the train is following the coast, there is only the occasional glimpse of sea through the dense coastal bush. I rest my head against the window, then close my eyes. When I open them, it's darker outside than it should be, and the carriage lights are on. My own reflection stares back at me from the glass, stark against the looming black shapes of the landscape beyond. The train stops at every tiny obscure station along the way, so the journey drags on into the late afternoon. Seems wrong that we are still travelling so late in the day. Ben told me he'd plan the trip carefully so that we would arrive at the camping site in plenty of time to pitch the tent in daylight. We are meant to get off the train at a stop called Coldcliffe. Surely by now we've passed it by. I look at my watch, but it only shows four o'clock, so it must have stopped. I struggle to my feet, then turn towards the rear of the carriage. Hey Ben, we must have to get off soon, it's nearly dark. These are the first words I direct towards my travelling companion since we boarded the train. Yet he isn't here to hear them. I walk up and down the empty carriage, puzzled to make sure he isn't lying on the seats, asleep and hidden from view. But there's no sign of Ben's distinctive shock of red hair. I set about searching the rest of the train, but there are no other passengers. For a long, disbelieving moment, I stand at the rear of the train, staring through the filthy window at the tracks as they recede into the twilight. It's baffling. Perhaps I'd nodded off and slept right through our stop at Carlcliffe, 
Ben must have got off without me. It's true that I'm a heavy sleeper, so maybe he had tried to wake me before giving up in order to leave the train before it pulled out of the station. I understand that we're not on the best of terms, but why would he abandon me? I have most of our camping supplies. Still, in a way, I'm relieved to be alone. Without Ben, I can get off anywhere, then wait for a train back to the city. And Kyla. As if on cue, the train slows, then pulls up at a station. I shoulder my backpack and make my way to the door. The ground feels unsteady under my feet as I step onto the empty platform. Smoke hangs heavily in the hot and suffocating air, catching at the back of my throat. An iron station sign says, Welcome to Clinker, coal capital of NSW. The sound of the station master's whistle makes me jump. I spin around just as the train clears the end of the platform. Its windows are glowing invitingly in the failing light, but something is wrong. I must have overlooked a fellow passenger because I can see the silhouette of a figure at the rearmost window of the last carriage. Its arms are moving jerkily. Is it waving at me? A feeling of unease stops me from waving in return. There is something overly familiar about the movement of the figure and the length of its hair. I shiver, despite the hot and sticky evening. All I can think about is getting back to the city as soon as possible. I turn towards the station building, which stretches the length of the platform. It looks derelict. Its windows are boarded up and covered in graffiti. I enter beneath a faded waiting room sign. The air is even warmer and smokier than outside. To my left is a small teller window, alongside which a small ornamental birdcage hangs from a hook on the ceiling. Subdued chirruping comes from the tiny, fluttering orange form within. To my right, several wooden benches are lined up, facing a large open fire in the centre of the wall opposite. The room is deserted, but it feels like someone has only just left. Certainly the fire is freshly made up and roars noisily. I look around for a timetable, but the walls are bare. I cough, but I can't quite clear my throat. I drop my backpack onto the dusty floor, then peer through the grimy teller window. The shadow within resolves itself into the shape of a figure sitting motionless at a desk. Hello there, I say. There is no response, so I raise my voice. Could you please tell me how long I'll have to wait for the next train back to the city? The figure turns and looks at me through opaque grey eyes like bubbles erupting from the surface of a mud pool. The trains don't stop here. I stare, transfixed by ripples moving slowly across his face. It's an odd effect which must be caused by the flickering firelight. How do you mean they don't stop here? I just got off a train from the city. I need to get back to Sydney as soon as possible. I was with a friend, you see, but we got separated. We were going to be camping tonight, but now it's too late. My voice trails off. The trains don't... You just told me that, but it doesn't help me much. Can I see a timetable? I'm about to say I want to speak to someone more senior, when I feel a tap on my shoulder. It is the station master. His dull blue uniform is threadbare, and he is very short. 
A whistle hangs from his lower lip, affixed there, like a cigarette. I'm afraid young Dale is right, sir, he says. Here in Clinker we don't get many visitors. His voice, directed partly through the whistle, has an oddly fluting lilt. Well, that suits me just fine. I'm, I'm not planning on staying. All I want to know is when I can get the next train out of here. Then I'll be more than happy to leave you in peace. Well, that's just it, you see. Uh, as we've said, the trains don't stop here. What, no trains at all? But one stopped for me, didn't it? The station master shakes his head. That's quite different. But why is it different? I lose my patience. If it's true, then I don't see the point of having a station at all. He looks offended. Well, back in the day, when the coal mine was going strong, we had visitors morning, noon and night. We were overrun with people. But then the mine closed, and that was that. It is fortuitous, though. I don't think we've had a visitor in the last ten years. And then we get two at the same time. I stare at him. Two? You mean someone else got off the train? Another young chap, much like yourself. Not five minutes ago. He stood right where you are now. He also had a mighty big backpack and a fine head of red hair. The waiting room is unbearably hot. Why is the fire even alight, much less built up so substantially on such a warm evening? It must have been the friend I'm travelling with. Do you know where he went? Well, not at all. He was in such a rush. Although now I come to think of it, he did say something about needing to find somewhere to stay. So I gave him one of these information packs about the local area. He produces a yellowing, dog-eared leaflet from his trouser pocket, then hands it to me. On its cover, it says, Clinker, coal capital of NSW. It feels gritty in my hand. Of course, the other traveller could only have been Ben, yet I'd been so certain that he was not on the train. Or was it merely some kind of wishful thinking on my part? I begin to doubt my own senses. Reluctantly, I look at the sorry leaflet. Among the faded photos of local attractions is the view of a camping site. I suppose you'll be looking for somewhere to stay too. All I can do is nod. I am overwhelmed by a sense of hopelessness. The unrelenting heat from the open fire and the thick, pungent smell of the burning coal, coating the inside of my mouth and blocking my nose, takes away my power of coherent thought. Dumbly I point at the list of hotels on the back cover of the leaflet. Oh, no, sir, I'm afraid most of those establishments have long since gone. There's only the pub left now, the Holes Hotel. It's just along the main road, up towards the cliff. You can't miss it. My brother Mike runs the place. He doesn't get many customers these days, so I'm sure he'll be more than pleased to let you have one of his rooms. The station master's voice is coming at me from a long way away, yet somehow the twittering from the canary in its cage is getting louder. Do you suppose my friend might be there? As I say this, I feel sweat dripping from my chin. There's nowhere else to go. I have to escape that claustrophobic waiting room. I stuff the leaflet into my pocket, scoop up my backpack, then rush for the exit beside the fireplace. I pray the door is not locked. I turn the handle, but before the door opens, I am overcome by the heat. It's all right, son. Most people are affected one way or another by Clinker's unique atmosphere. The air's a bit thick round here, you might say. I'm sitting on stony ground, propped up against the station wall.
The station master is crouched beside me, holding out a small glass of cloudy water. Despite a raging sore throat, I mumble my thanks. How do you mean? My voice is little more than a croak. I sip the water, but it is warm and it tastes sour. What's the coal, see? Since they closed the mine, no one's been back to seal up the shafts and tunnels. They say it's too dangerous. So ever since then, we've all helped ourselves to as much of the coal as we can get. The whole town runs on it. The only drawback is the smoke, but you get used to it. He looks at his wristwatch. You see, it's barely five in the afternoon. Yet it's almost dark. Sure enough, my watch shows ten minutes to five. So it can't have stopped after all. But it's summer. I wouldn't have thought many people would need a fire going this time of the year. Well, most people in Clinker keep a fire going all year round. It doesn't cost anything, so why not? Also, we've adapted just about everything to run on Carl. He smiles, revealing stumps of blunt, brown teeth. We do everything ourselves. We have our own coal-powered generator, so we don't need to be connected to the electricity grid. And we have our own water supply, which we pump from the ground with coal-powered steam pumps. Years back, the roads in and out of Clink are melted in the summer heat, so now we're pretty much cut off, apart from the train line. But you know that doesn't get used very often. The truth is, we've developed our own ways of doing things, so we really don't need the outside world at all. At last I find the strength to pull myself upright against the wall. Ah, oh, let me help you. His smooth, dry hands flitter all over me. I think he's trying to hook the straps of the backpack over my shoulder. No, no, I'm fine, thanks. I brush his hands away, but he continues. Look, son, I'll walk you up to Mike's place. It's just up the hill on the right. His face is too close to mine. I can smell something sweet and sickly on his breath as he begins to take my arm. Get your hands off me. As I wrestle away from him, I drop the glass of water. It explodes into shards on the rough ground, soaking our shoes. We both pause to stare at the wreckage at our feet. <sighs> Look, I'm sorry. Let me pay for the glass and... Honestly, I'll be fine on my own. Can you just tell me how to get to the pub? The station master steps away from me, crunching broken glass beneath his feet. He points along the road to the looming dark shape of the cliff. As we look, a light flicks on in the distance, illuminating the words, Holes Hotel. Michael, look after you. He winks, then goes back into the waiting room letting the door slam behind him. I set out along the edge of the road, tasting the coal dust in my throat and picturing the damage it is doing to my lungs. To my left is a large open space, at the far end of which stand several distinctive buildings, nestling beneath trees. Despite the premature twilight, it's clear that it is the camping site from the leaflet that the station master gave me. Rather than the smooth grass shown in the photograph, however, it looks more like a bombsite, pockmarked by jagged holes in the ground and piles of rocky earth. The whole area is surrounded by chain-link fencing. None of it looks suitable for camping on. Yet near the far end, a solitary tent is pitched amid the devastation. From the shadows surrounding the tent, a jerky movement catches my eye. 
Surely it must be Ben, but from so far away and in such poor light, I can't tell. As I look in vain for an entrance to the campsite, the ground begins to shake. With a glacial slowness, a split appears in the earth, rending the camping site in two, as though tectonic plates shift in anger. The movement is accompanied by a deep, rumbling sound, which feels like it comes from the center of my head. The tent is shaken by the disturbance, and I can't see the figure anymore. Seconds pass, which feel like hours, before the ground becomes still. The rumbling carries on for some time. Then all is calm once more. Did I witness an earthquake? I think about the possibility of an aftershock, so I brace myself, but nothing comes. The air is clogged with dust. I have to wait for the atmosphere to clear before I can see that the tent has gone, presumably swallowed whole by the hungry earth. As far as I can tell, I am the only witness. Should I investigate? However, although the fence is largely collapsed, it still effectively bars my way. Instead, I decide to raise the alarm at the pub. I force myself to turn around, legs shaking yet ready to run the rest of the way up the hill. But to my surprise, the whole hotel is directly behind me. The building is dark, apart from the flickering sodium light of the sign which bears its name. I run up the veranda steps, then try several doors, all of which are locked. I pick one at random to pound on with my fists, then peer through its filthy glass panel. The light comes on from somewhere within, and a dark shape approaches the door. I am aware that I am hysterical. You've got to come, I shout as the door is opened. There's been a disaster, an earthquake. I saw someone disappear, or at least I think I did. I assume the figure I see through the crack in the door is Mike, the landlord. His face resembles the station master's, and he is just as short. Take it easy, son. I think I know what you saw. You have to ring the police or an ambulance or something, right now. No, no, there's no need for that. He opens the door wide, beckons me inside. We don't need the police, son. Not anymore. We look after ourselves here in Clinker. Once inside, I begin to calm down. He tells me to sit on a bar stool, then opens an ancient fridge from which he gives me an open bottle of beer. But you don't understand, I say. Ah, but I do. You're the one who doesn't understand. We've had a problem with sinkholes ever since the mine was abandoned. At first it caused no end of problems, and now we're quite used to it. In fact, we have so many, we hardly notice them anymore. I'm sure that's what you've seen. I feel dizzy. I take a swig of the beer, which is both lukewarm and flat. How can I convey the seriousness of the situation? I saw someone. A camper. It looked like my friend. His tent was swallowed by the sinkhole, as you say. He might have fallen down it, too. He could be injured or worse. We need an ambulance at the very least. I take it you mean over the road, in the camping site. I nod. He studies my face. Well, you don't need to worry about that, son. You see, I run the camping site as well as this place. Nothing happens in Clinker that I don't know about. But I'm positive I saw... He shakes his head. There is a twinkle in his eye which somehow seems all wrong. I was over there less than an hour ago. 
I checked the fence and replaced the rusty old padlock on the gate with a new one. I can assure you no one's been there in years. In any case, there's nowhere to pitch a tent there anymore. It's one of the areas that's been most affected by the sinkholes, so I keep it fenced off and locked up all the time. I tried to make him see sense. It must have been Ben. We were travelling together, but we got separated. We, we had a tent just like the one I saw. We have to do something. Well, if that's what you're worried about, you'll be relieved to know that it couldn't have been your friend because he's staying here. In fact, he's up in his room right now. He still looks at me as he points to the ornate wooden panel on the wall behind the bar from which room keys hang from numbered brass hooks. One set of keys is missing. As if to reinforce his point, I hear footsteps from somewhere above our heads. I don't often have guests these days. In fact, just between you and me, I can't remember the last time I had a book in. He produces a battered old ledger from beneath the counter, then opens it. You can have the room next to his if you like. I'll need your details. He leans in close, brandishing a pen. I pull away and almost topple from the stool. Shouldn't we at least go and have a look, in, in case someone's trapped or even buried? My voice sounds very small. No, no, not at all. It would be way too dangerous. No one should walk on that land anymore. Sign here. I understand there is no point in arguing, so I take the pen from his damp hand. Sure enough, there is just one recent signature in the book. But is it Ben's? The letters spell out his name, but it doesn't look right. I scrawl my name on the line below. He slams the ledger shut. I shoulder my backpack once more, then follow him through a set of double doors to the interior of the hotel. We enter what looks like a ballroom. It has a tall, vaulted ceiling, and an enormous chandelier, draped in cobwebs and offering very little light. At the far end of the room, a sweeping staircase and a stage disappear into the gloom. Tables, draped in white linen, and laid with ornate silverware and crockery, lined up across the floor as if awaiting the arrival of guests. Movement from above catches my eye. A bird flaps and swoops in and out of the shadows. A flash of orange tells me it is a canary, just like the caged one I had seen in the waiting room. Mike pauses for a moment to look up at the bird, but he makes no comment. We make our way to the staircase. As we pass between the tables, I let my hand brush across one of the plates. My fingertips come away black. Ah, Deco, Mike says. His voice echoes. What's that? This building. You know, over the years, this great country has lost most of its great Art Deco buildings. But here in Clinker, we've bucked the trend. This place is just like it was back in the old days. He indicates the cavernous ballroom with a sweep of his arm. This place is a temple to the past. It hasn't changed in years, since long before they closed down the mine. We used to get hundreds of guests at a time. He stops ahead of me on the first step of the stairs. I don't often get to show this place off these days. I follow him to the upper floor, where we walk along the wide balcony overlooking the ballroom. Mike stops by a pair of curtains which hang limp against the wall, then pulls them apart to reveal a dark entranceway. He gropes along the wall into the blackness and presses a switch. The corridor bursts into light. 
I catch the briefest glimpse of a dismal, claustrophobic passageway, roughly hewn, subterranean walls, supported at intervals by splintered timbers, bound precariously by thick, gnarled rope. Then I am blinded by the light. By the time my vision returns, Mike is a fair way along the corridor. I blink in disbelief. The scene has changed. The walls are immaculate, lined in shining wooden panels reflecting a series of fluorescent lights at regular intervals along the low ceiling. Polished brass handrails run along both sides of the apparently endless passageway. It's an opulent sight. As I follow Mike, richly coloured deep pile carpet shifts under my feet. It's just along here, he says over his shoulder. This used to be the staff quarters. Back then we were the second largest employer in Clinker. After the coal mine, of course. I'll put you in one of the rooms at the end. We pass many closed doors, and to my surprise, we can soon walk no further. My impression that the corridor was so long came from the mirror entirely covering the end wall. The atmosphere is unbearably close. There is no sign of a window, nor any kind of ventilation. I have the impression that the further we go along the corridor, the smaller its dimensions become. My head aches. Here we are, Mike says. He points. There are two doors next to each other near the end of the corridor. He points at the furthest one then winks at me. That one's taken. I can see no evidence of room numbers. He swings the door of my room open, then stands aside to let me enter. Once inside, I can just about stand up straight, though my hair brushes lightly against the ceiling. The smell of dust makes my nose prickle. In the opposite corner, adjacent to a tightly shuttered window, is a plain four-poster bed flanked by a small table and a wardrobe. To the left of the door is a small cage hanging from a hook in the ceiling. The orange bird inside is completely still. The only light in the room comes from a gas lamp on the bedside table. He watches me from the threshold. I'm sure you'll be comfortable here. This is one of our best rooms. I'm afraid you're too late for dinner, but breakfast is at eight. I nod. Well, see you then. Make sure you get a good night's sleep. Gratefully, I let my heavy backpack drop to the floor by the bed. I think about knocking on Ben's door, but I can't resist stretching out on the bed just for a moment. Its ancient springs object as I recline. I take my watch off and place it on the bedside table. I'm too tired to search for my pyjamas from my backpack, so I crawl between the sheets as I am. My head touches the pillow, and a wave of lethargy sweeps over me, like it had earlier in the waiting room. My head feels light, and I am powerless to stop the room spinning and my eyes from closing. I feel my consciousness slip away. I dream of claustrophobia, of impenetrable darkness, and of being unable to breathe, because my lungs are choked by thick smoke. Nonetheless, I feel somewhat refreshed when I am woken by the canary, singing and fluttering in its cage. Flat grey light seeps from the edges of the shuttered window. Hunger drives me from my room in search of the promised breakfast. 
As I pull my door shut, I glance at the room next to mine. I wonder if Ben is still in there, or if he's already in the dining room. I put my ear against the door, but I hear nothing. Hello? Ben? I try the handle. It's unlocked, so I open it wide. The room is just like my own. Not even a mirror image. The bed is dishevelled, and his backpack is abandoned beside it. But there's no sign of the tent that Ben was carrying. I look around the door jamb, and I'm not surprised to see that there is an orange bird in a cage beside the door here, too. I am about to enter the room, but something stops me. By now I feel faint with hunger, so I pull the door shut, then make my way back along the corridor. Down in the great dining room, one of the tables is set with breakfast things for two people. Fried eggs, bacon rashers, crispy potatoes and toast on a platter in the centre of the table are glutinous and cold. Despite the sour smell of cooking oil, I pile my plate high and eat ravenously. There is no sign of Ben, or indeed of anyone, but the place set for him has been used. The fat pooled on his plate has solidified, so I must have missed him by some time. Thankfully there is no sign of the orange bird which was on the loose the evening before. Mike is at the reception desk, swigging from a can of beer. His head jerks up as he sees me, and he almost spits out a mouthful. He begins to speak, but I am in no mood for platitudes. I take a deep breath, then cut him off. Where's my friend? I saw him last night, and I missed him at breakfast, and he's not in his room. I just want to get out of this godforsaken place, so as soon as I found Ben, we'll check out and get back to the station, catch the next train to the city. And if there really isn't a train, we'll walk. It's quite a speech. I am emboldened by a night's sleep and some breakfast. Mike pauses to consider his response. Then he places his beer out of sight behind the counter. He's gone down to the pit. Mike stares at me as though issuing some kind of challenge. A minute passes in silence. All right, I give up. Just tell me what he's doing there. He opens the flap in the counter, then makes his way out to my side. I move away from him as he approaches. You know, we all visit the pit on a Sunday morning. Every family sends someone to collect enough fuel for the week. It's a local tradition. I suppose you could even say it's a kind of religion. So what's that got to do with Ben? He chooses his words carefully. The yeah, problem is we've used up the supply of coal from the shallowest strata, so we have to go deeper, and that brings its own risks, as you might understand. I really don't understand much of anything around here. Let me show you. I need to collect my share this morning anyway. He indicates the hotel with a sweep of his arm. This place takes a lot of heating. Even in the summer I get through a lot of fuel. Damn it, I thought you said you never had any visitors. The pitch just down the hill away. He turns and makes his way to the door. Despite the warmth, he takes a heavy overcoat from a hook on the wall, then pulls it on. I have no choice but to follow him as he crosses the pub's veranda into the faltering light of the morning. It is already too hot and muggy to be comfortable. We walk along the crumbling road, adjacent to the ravaged campsite. Smoke still hangs in the air, obscuring the sun and blurring the horizon behind a dirty brown pall. 
In the weak daylight, I see that the two distinctive buildings at the rear of the field are in danger of collapse, their foundations compromised by the recent movement of the earth. Their walls are cracked and lean at crazy angles. I expect a reaction from Mike at the scene of devastation. There is none. Despite his small stature, he is walking so rapidly that I can barely keep up and my shirt is soaked with sweat. I gasp and wheeze in the polluted atmosphere. We descend the hill and pass the train station. There are no trains. I begin to notice movement from the periphery of my vision. Darkly smudged shapes transform themselves into people, mainly women and children who make their way from lanes and side streets towards the main road. All are walking in the direction we head, and most wear dark oilskin smocks. Mike nods or grunts to those close to us, but there is no response that I can hear, and he doesn't introduce me to anyone. Soon we have skirted the edge of the town and we approach a silent and still coal refinery. A spindly arrangement of rusting framework clusters around a dilapidated clapboard structure which barely conceals the obscure machinery within. A conveyor belt angles steeply away from the peak of the edifice, like some kind of extreme fairground ride which ends abruptly, still meters from the ground. The place has clearly lain dormant for many years. The road has long since disintegrated, leaving us to stumble along the rough ground, avoiding the perilously exposed ridges of coal seams which have punched through the soft earth. The humidity gives way to warm rain, which brings coal dust with it, leaving my hands and face both gritty and slimy. Mike pushes through the crowd to my side, then grasps my arm. We're nearly there, he says and gestures towards the dilapidated buildings beside us. Unfortunately, we can't use the main shaft. The lift doesn't work, and we've not been able to repair it. Still, we can access the coal nearer the surface. There's a shaft which is accessible from the old quarry on the other side of this ridge. We crest the brow of a rise, then begin the descent into an open-cast mine, bordered on three sides by a sheer cliff. A swathe of destruction has been cut through the landscape, laying bare the bones of the earth. The exposed clay is shiny in the rain, sticking to my shoes. My feet are almost too heavy to lift, and I am forced into an ungainly shuffle to make my way safely down the slope. We are all headed for a concrete archway, set into the base of the cliff on the far edge of the quarry. By the time we reach the entrance, despite the uncertain darkness within, I am glad to find shelter from the rain. This is where we've always collected our fuel, Mike says, as he shrugs out of his coat and shakes the water off. Trouble is, we've exhausted the supply of easily accessible coal from this seam. If we remove much more, the shaft will become unstable, so we have to go down to the next layer. Like I said, this is dangerous. It's pretty deep down there, quite a way into the cliff. Some years ago we sent a group down to investigate, but they didn't come back. What do you think happened to them? He shakes his head. Could be one of two things. As you've seen yourself, the ground around here is unstable. There might have been a collapse further down in the shaft, although we didn't hear anything. And then there's the fire damp. What? Fire damp. 
gases that build up in the mine shaft so that you can't breathe. He looks at me closely. Over the years, we've had to develop a strategy for improving the situation. I'm about to ask what he means by that when the familiar figure of the station master appears next to Mike. They nod at each other, then Mike says something under his breath that I can't catch. They stand next to each other, so I see that they are identical twins. Come on, we've got work to do, Mike says to the station master. They turn to follow the steady stream of villagers who are venturing further along the tunnel. Coal dust is thick in the air. All I can do is follow them down the dark and foul passageway. Its familiar, roughly hewn walls are supported at intervals by splintered timbers, bound precariously by thick, gnarled rope. We are deep in the tunnel, and I stumble on the sloping ground. As we round a bend, we lose the daylight from the tunnel's entrance, and our way is lit only by safety lamps hanging from roof beams. No one speaks, so the sound of shuffling feet is mesmeric. There is so much I want to ask, so much I need to know, but I am struck dumb by being a part of the townspeople's collective consciousness. I feel unable to disrupt what feels increasingly like a religious experience. We march on for what seems like an eternity. Sweat runs down my face, and my shirt is soaked. My throat is sore, and the coal dust makes it difficult to breathe. The villagers ahead of us come to a stop. Some of them are milling about aimlessly. Mike and the station master thread their way through, nodding the occasional greeting, but saying nothing. I follow them, stepping on toes, mumbling apologies. But I get no response other than sideways looks or frowns. Once I reach the head of the crowd, I see that they've stopped at the very end of the main shaft. To the left is a smaller hole, roughly chopped into the side of the tunnel and supported by rotten, sopping planks, wedged into the remnants of the coal seam. I look inside, but all I see is the ground, running with moisture, sloping sharply down into absolute darkness. Mike stands to one side of the hull and addresses the villagers in a deep, practiced voice. It could be some kind of sermon, but I can't follow the gist of it. Now he speaks about the need to explore the deeper coal seam and the danger that entails. There is a murmur of agreement from the crowd, the first sounds I hear from any of them. Then he beckons towards the gaping hole beside us. And now we have our latest visitors, sent our way to help us out in Clinker's hour of need. He moves to my side and takes my arm. I try to object, but my throat is closed and I cannot shape any words. I have to spit out some phlegm before I can speak. <laughs> what? You're talking nonsense. How can I do anything to help you? I'm here to find my friend, then as soon as I have, we're out of here. I look around on the verge of panic into the dead eyes of the villagers. Mike smiles. The station master has approached me soundlessly from my other side, so that I am trapped between them. Of course that's understood, Mike says. We will sort everything out soon enough. In fact, in just a moment, all you have to do is to come with us to the lower coal seam. It's mostly safe, really it is. Some of us have been down there already and have had some success retrieving a small amount of fuel, 
the thing is, we don't know how far we can go before we're in danger. I struggle, but it's no use. Although they are smaller than me, Mike and the Station Master are wiry and strong. They push me towards the hull. As I approach the threshold, I see a faint light further along the tunnel. Mike calls into the tunnel and receives a muffled response from within. Did you hear that? The Station Master says. There's nothing to be afraid of. We'll be right behind you. I have to duck as I am propelled into the blackness of the smaller tunnel, and I almost fall on its slimy surface. Just as my claustrophobia becomes unbearable, however, the tunnel opens out so that we can walk upright once again. We emerge into a much larger tunnel, much neater, and of a more solid construction than the others nearer the surface. A cluster of lamps hangs from one of the angled support beams. Down the centre of the steadily descending shaft is a set of rails, and in the distance, just before darkness consumes everything, two flatbed coal trucks stand on the tracks. There are several villagers standing around, talking together under their breath. One of them produces a tiny square cage from under her smock, containing one of the bright orange birds. As soon as the canary emerges into the flickering light, it starts to chirrup and run back and forth along its narrow perch. Mike takes one of the lamps and beckons me to follow him along the mine shaft. We walk beside the rail tracks and the heat increases with every step we take. For the first time, I see that on both of the trucks stand rusty and misshapen cages, about the height of a human. As Mike walks to the furthest of the trucks, the light from his lamp shows me that both bizarre structures contain a wooden perch and a cracked, hazy, oval mirror. In the cage on the furthest truck, something is lying in a heap on the floor. I stand back, afraid. Mike climbs up onto the truck, unlocks the door of the cage and reaches inside. From behind I hear the sound of countless shuffling feet getting closer. I turn around to see that the mineshaft is filling steadily with the villagers moving as one, blocking any escape route. I spin back around to see Mike unhook the mirror from inside the cage. My legs shake as I force myself to approach the truck. I lean against its wooden side panel and peer into the structure. Mike is fully inside, bent double over what looks like a figure, prone on the cage floor, deep in shadow. He holds the mirror in front of the pale oval of the figure's face, seemingly to check for signs of life. I jump back in shock, only to collide with some of the villagers, who are now right behind me. I look around, disbelieving, desperate to see some understanding in the sea of faces, but only flat, emotionless eyes stare back at me. Is that Ben? What have you done to him? I gasp at the smoky air, swallowing grit, unable to breathe. My knees buckle, but the station master grasps my elbow and pulls me upright. All I can do is watch as Mike straightens up then climbs out of the cage and off the side of the truck. The figure, if it is a figure, is still motionless. Mike walks towards me, brandishing the mirror from the cage. Is he dead? I ask. 
My voice sounds very small. It doesn't matter. Mike holds the mirror up before my face. Not now that we've got you. I focus my eyes on the reflection in the mirror. I am presented with my own pale, tired features and my own unruly shock of orange hair. Today's story was The Trains Don't Stop Here by M. R. Cosby It was read by Jasper Lestrange If you enjoy the show and would like to support me there are several ways you can do so You can make a one-off donation through Ko-fi You can join as a YouTube channel member or become a patron on Patreon and make a monthly contribution, gaining access to exclusive content. Liking, commenting, sharing and subscribing all help the channel grow. Thank you for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>